1: Process whereby monarchy is carried on from one generation to another is often more complicated and, as it were, indirect than the simple notion of, as it were, father, son succeeding, father would lead one to
2: suppose. That was David Canadine talking about the complicated history of Britain's kings and queens.
3: He managed to convince the British people, who were fairly dubious about the monarchy after the horrors of the application, That this was an institution which mattered, which was important in our lives.
2: And that was Philip Ziegler on the importance of George VI's reign to the British monarchy. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of January 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. The Penguin Monarchs series is a new collection of concise biographies of England's kings and queens, written by some of the country's best-known historians. To launch the series, the publisher's Penguin held a debate in London, featuring several of these authors, and our reviews editor, Matt Elton, was lucky enough to go along to watch it. This special edition of the History Extra podcast features that debate, as well as a series of interviews Matt recorded with some of the participants. He first spoke to David Canadine, the author of George V, The Unexpected King.
4: So why do you think this series of books is important?
2: Well,
1: I think it's a very original idea on the part of the publishers, um, though to say that is itself perhaps debatable, since what's new about publishing the lives of every English and then British monarch in a series? Well, the answer is nobody has ever done that before in modern times. Uh, So either this is a very good idea because nobody's done it, but there'll be a big market for it, or it's not a very good idea, which is why nobody has done it before. Um, I, of course, as one of the contributors to this series, have a vested interest in believing that it's an important series, that it will reach a broad audience, and that it will do many things, ranging from providing, in some senses... Uh, a history of the whole of this country as it's changed over time from being England to England and Wales to being the United Kingdom to being the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland to being the British Empire and seeing how the monarchs have been central to that process of development and have changed over time. And I think that that will come out uh, if anybody's willing to read all of these books from cover to cover in sequence. Um, But even if they're not prepared to do that, I think that the series does serve as a reminder that for much of this nation's history, monarchs have been absolutely central to it as rulers. And while monarchs these days reign but don't rule, uh, I don't think we need a reminding that if we think of the life of the present queen, that even monarchs in the 20th century and perhaps the 19th century who have reigned but not ruled have themselves been hugely important. So uh, it is my own view and my own hope that this will turn out to be a very important and very significant series about a subject that we all perhaps feel we can
4: take for granted, but I think what this series will show is that that isn't so. Mm. Talking about themes that emerge from more than one book. To what extent do you think monarchs were aided by the fact they didn't expect to come to the throne? And was that the case with George V?
1: One of the things that's going to be enormously interesting and fun about this series is reading monarchs' lives against each other, um, and often across the centuries, in ways that one otherwise wouldn't expect to do or wouldn't be able to do. And if we take the volumes that are just coming out at the moment, one of the things that does emerge, if we take Henry VIII, if we take Charles I, if we take My Man, George V, and if we take George VI... None of those monarchs, and we're therefore uh, talking along across several centuries, none of those monarchs was born to be king. Uh, And yet in the end they all became king. So it is a reminder that the process whereby monarchy is carried on from one generation to another is often more complicated and, as it were, indirect than the simple notion of, as it were, father, son succeeding father would lead one to suppose. And if we take the last 200 years, uh, Queen Victoria, King George V, King George VI and the present Queen were all born not with the expectation that they would become uh, king or queen. So it's a very pronounced theme certainly in the history of modern monarchy but also in earlier times if we think of the Tudor period uh, Edward uh, the Sixth was the only Tudor monarch who was born expecting to become uh, sovereign so it's an important theme certainly across the centuries that so far um, the five books that have just appeared um, provide us with a way into
4: and it seems to have been a positive thing in their lives why do you think that was?
1: Well, it certainly does seem to be true that quite often um, monarchs who were not born expecting to be monarchs did rather well, um, whereas on occasions monarchs who are born expecting to be monarchs don 't do so well and One of the reasons they may not do so well is because it often means they 're waiting around for a very long time. If we think of George the Fourth or Edward the Seventh would be obvious examples of that. Uh, monarchs who have to uh, wait around a very long time before they finally, uh, in uh, what we would now call old age, uh, get the job that, as it were, their whole life has been a preparation for. And, of course, uh, it will not escape you that that might perhaps have some implications for current
4: and future um, circumstances. Um, Talking again about George V, to what extent did he set the tone for the monarchs of the rest of the 20th century?
1: I think George VI was a hugely influential monarch in all sorts of ways, and one of the ways in which he was particularly influential was that he settled for this style of uh, public grandeur, uh, a certain form of private probity and decency, um, a liking for country life, uh, a certain uh, quiet form of Anglican observance, um, and a belief that the purpose of monarchy was to try to transcend the social and class divisions of the country. And I think that uh, monarchy, um, that style of monarchy, that mode of monarchy, was one in many ways that George V perfected. It was very different from the raffish, cosmopolitan, louche style of his own father, for example... Um, and very different, of course, from the raffish, rather loose style of his el- loose style of his eldest son, Edward Eighth. But if we take George V, George VI, and the present Queen, there's a significant continuity, I think, around those values and modes that George V, at least in retrospect, uh, pioneered um, and was able, in some senses, to institutionalise through his second son um, and then through his granddaughter.
4: And finally, what sense of a man do we get? What would he be like if we met him face-to-face?
1: I think one of the ways in which George V is very interesting, and he's actually interesting in lots of ways, is that he was terribly good as being the father of his people. He wasn't very good at being the father of his own children. Um, I think that he performed and helped redefine the public roles of the monarchy exceptionally well. Um, he was, for example, a very accomplished broadcaster with a rather beautiful speaking voice. But I don't think he was socially... Um, somebody who one would find uh, memorable or easy uh, sitting next to at dinner. Um, So although I think he performed many of the jobs of Monarch very well and helped to redefine them and extend them, I think the job of being socially adept and being um, a warm-hearted father were things that he was rather less good at.
2: That was David Canadine. Matt then spoke to Stephen Alford, whose book, subtitled The Last Boy King, explores the life of Edward VI.
4: So you write that Edward's always been a bit of a mystery. Uh, What did you make of his personality?
5: Still difficult, um, still elusive in all kinds of ways. Um, It's very hard, it was very hard, and I think still is very hard to make sense of personality, character, temperament... Um, of a child without the context of, of adulthood and there's some sense of, of sort of being unfinished and being um, incomplete in all kinds of ways. Um, I think the essential, I mean really the first essential starting point with um, Edward is that um, he was the only one of the Tudor monarchs who was ever expected uh, from birth um, to be a king and that expectation was always there that weight was always there, and I think Edward was hugely conscious of it from a very, very young age, Um, from really almost as soon as he was writing letters to Henry VIII to Catherine Parr, um, when he was seven, seven or eight. Um, And there are different messages, I think. There are messages about the love of learning, And a virtue, virtue is a word that um, keeps popping up in Edward's works over and over again, letters over and over again. Virtue over magnificence, learning and education. So there's that sort of element of the the experience for for Edward. But increasingly as he got older, I think um, a stronger kingly voice of authority Still a little bit of fantasy to it, you know, by the time he's 14, 15, um, and yet a strong sense of self, of rule, and of the need and expectation um, to rule, and a certain kind of bossiness as well. And that comes through very strongly in um, letters and exchanges with um, his noble companions at court. Um, dukes and earls and barons of, of his age or maybe a little bit older. Um, and one friend in particular, Barnaby Fitzpatrick, and there are some fantastic letters from Edward to Barnaby when Barnaby was in Paris on a, a diplomatic embassy getting some experience of the world of the court, the French court, and some hugely bossy letters, really, from Edward. Um, to Barnaby, um, emphasising what he should and shouldn't be doing. Uh, and a, a sense of a young boy who um, knew he was in charge, really.
4: That's the thing about him. It's amazing that he was only ever a child. Mm. Um, what do you think his legacy was? The legacy is a really sort of complicated one. The immediate
5: legacy um, was, uh, was political crisis. Um, a, a, a boy who at the age of 14, 15, um, was quite as conscious um, as his father of his powers and authorities in determining the succession, of writing two half-sisters out of the succession and of trying to engineer the accession of his cousin, Lady Jane Grey, in 1553. So the immediate legacy um, was one of um, a political uh, emergency, in the summer of uh, 53. Um, Beyond that, um, the legacy of Edward was very much a legacy of um, what his subjects understood him to be. Uh, and there's an element of Protestant hero about it. You know, this is a period of scouring change and reformation, sweeping away of so many of the elements of, of Catholic England. And um, Edward, so far as we can tell, seems to have been fully subscribed um, to that. Um, so huge changes with big implications um, over, over many um, decades. Um, And also I think another long-term political legacy was raising bars of expectation or raising the bar of expectation for what his sister, half-sister Elizabeth would do, um, who really resented, I think, and resisted um, any comparisons with her brother, or any expectations that she would follow a a similar pattern of um, thoroughgoing Protestant reform. Um, So in a sense, there's a very high bar set for sort of kingly reformation and change that Mary tried to reverse as much as she could and Elizabeth found a deeply uncomfortable legacy.
4: And finally, uh, if you could travel back in time somehow and ask Edward a question, what would you ask him?
5: I think the big question, the big mystery still about Edward, um, is 1553, um, his device that altered um, the succession. Um, It exists; it's in the king's hand. Uh, We know that he he wrote it. We can sense that he conceived it. Um, He pushed it, it was very much his project, but we know so little about the context. And I think the question or questions I'd want to ask would be about where the idea came from, how did he write it, what were the circumstances, was it something that he produced on his own, was he pushed, was he encouraged by political interests and big figures at court around him?
2: So I think that's that's really the big mystery. That was Stephen Alford. Matt also caught up with Philip Ziegler, whose book, The Dutiful King, focuses on the life of George VI.
3: To what extent did he shape Britain's experiences during the war? Obviously, the most eminent, the most widely known, the most um, popular figure in Britain in the, in, the, in the Second World War was Winston Churchill. Therefore, to some extent, George VI was always slightly in the shade But he nevertheless, when I say he used the war in a master way, I mean, the war gave him the opportunity to resonate in the public mind in a way which um, had never happened before the war. This vision of the king picking his way through ruined buildings after the Blitz, patently, desperately concerned about them, worried about his people, interest in them, involved in them. I think it... Gave an impression which was less potent than that of Churchill, but in a curious way more emotionally involving. People really grew to, to, to love the idea of the monarch in these really stressful years when everything seemed to be going wrong, chaos was around the corner. And there, this was this sort of still, slightly grey figure, absolutely not in any way deviating from his conviction that we were going to win the war, and that he was going to be there when it happened. And despite not being that
4: keen on becoming king, what legacy do you think he left our current queen?
3: He took over a throne which was tottering. And it was not tottering to the extent he thought it was, but he believed that after the abdication crisis, the monarchy had been gravely damaged, perhaps fatally damaged. He left, he handed on to his daughter the most stable throne in the world. He must have done something right. (laughs) And I think he managed to convince the British people, who were fairly dubious about the monarchy after the horrors of the abdication, that this was an institution which mattered, which was important in their lives, and which the country needed and supported.
2: That was Philip Ziegler talking to Matt Elton. And now let's hear the debate, which featured David, Stephen and Philip, together with John Guy, author of Henry VIII, The Quest for Fame. The chair of the event was the historian Helen Castor.
6: John Guy is one of the great names in Tudor history. A fellow of Clare College, Cambridge, he's previously written lives of Thomas and Margaret Moore, Thomas Beckett in an excursion into the medieval world, and a prize-winning biography of Mary, Queen of Scots. For Penguin, he's turning his attention to the big man himself, Henry VIII. Stephen Alford is Professor of Early Modern British History at the University of Leeds. A former student of John's, he's now joined him as one of the leading lights of 16th century history. He's written with great distinction, most recently on the secret world of Elizabethan espionage, and the monarch he's giving us is Henry VIII's son, Edward VI. With Professor Sir David Canadine, we leave behind the 16th century for the modern world. David is Dodge Professor of History at Princeton and has written extensively on the history of 19th and 20th century Britain, the British Empire, and the United States. Yet another string recently added to his bow is the editorship of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, and the life he's written for Penguin is that of George V. And the 20th century is also where we find Philip Ziegler, a remarkable man of letters, On top of two distinguished careers as a diplomat and a publisher, Philip has written more than 20 works of history and biography on subjects all the way from the Black Death to Edward Heath. And his monarch is George V's son, George VI. Now, we're going to start by talking a little bit about each monarch in turn before widening the discussion to a broader perspective. And I thought we should take them in chronological order. So, John, we need to start with you and with Henry. You've spent many years writing about Tudor England and the men and women around this most famous of our kings. So is this life of Henry VIII a distillation of all that experience, or is it the reaching for you of a new perspective?
7: No, because I wanted to completely re-engineer the way that I uh, thought about Henry to write this book. And of course, writing a book as short as this on a reign so big is actually in itself quite a, quite, quite a challenge. So I decided, as indeed Mark Kishlansky decided in his book on, on Charles I, and I, I have to say that is a wonderful book. You, the fact that he's not here because he's in Boston, Massachusetts, doesn't mean you shouldn't buy his book, it's a fantastic <laughs> book. Uh, but that's the commercial over. Uh, no, I wanted to, to, to re-engineer uh, Henry from scratch, because uh, in the last 12 years I've primarily become a biographer. And that means seeing things from the point of view of your subject and also considering their inner world as well as their exterior world. So I really wanted to do two things in this book. I wanted to see the main events of the reign through Henry's eyes. I also wanted to understand how it was that a king who was so politically secure uh, felt so insecure psychologically. Remember, this is a king who will spend two weeks sort of thinking out how to execute, you know, wives or ministers or... You know, whatever or great and great nobles but won't turn up for the execution and you know, wants to do something different at that moment. But, but he's also a king who, um, I mean there are moments when he loves his wife uh, wives, and, or the wife of the moment and there are moments when uh, he loves his children even though he sent Thomas Cromwell uh, with instructions when his uh, eld- elder daughter Mary uh, would not accept the royal supremacy sent Thomas Cromwell uh, to tell her that if she didn't conform and you know, the articles her head would be beaten against a wall until it was like a baked apple uh, nonetheless, non- nonetheless this is also a king he can be he can be a monster he can be uh, a much more um, constructive intellectual art loving sort of person the sort of person that you know one would quite sometimes like to know although personally I wouldn't want to go to the pub with Henry VIII. Uh, uh, but of course he's also a king who loved his dogs he adored his dogs Cut and ball, he would pay, you know, actually, in modern money, £500 a pop you know, if they strayed away. He loved his coursing spaniels and he loved his, uh, he loved his greyhounds. And he would, he would spend up to, to you know, £1,000 on a jewel collar for one of his mastiffs and you know, spend an astronomical amount on, on, on dog food. He even had clocks made in the shape of dogs. So he's a really eclectic... This is an eclectic man. This is a man who will uh, go out with Thomas More onto the roof of a royal palace while Thomas More is his secretary... Uh, Actually, you you must always remember that. Thomas More was the secretary before he ever became Lord Chancellor. I mean, he spent... The secretary was there 24-7. He knew Henry better than probably anybody else. Uh, But this is also a man whom Henry, at the drop of a hat, will send to the gallows, or rather to the executioner's block. Uh, And Henry is a man who... he has a conscience which is infinitely flexible uh, and what he decides to be expedient, he also decides to be just. He can also turn against friends and ministers at a moment's notice. But actually, the sort of thing that we're here today to do is to actually not talk about our monarchs ad infinitum, but actually to put them into a 500-year or even a 1,000-year context. Uh, And in that context, uh, it seems to me that what really matters about Henry, this is a man who's... Big in shape, big in ambition, both um, you know, for himself, for the monarchy, uh, for the institutions of uh, the country. Uh, he had um, an in, in, in insatiable uh, thirst for fame he wanted to be like Alexander the Great even and, from when he was nine years old and
6: this is the, the title you've given to your book but Henry VIII The Quest for Fame yes
7: but, I, so, but, I, but, I, but I, I, I'm going to let the audience into a secret <laughs> that, 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 that originally in this series because these are the first books to be published and the series work you know, there's a trajectory you learn as you go along and originally there were to be no subtitles and then quite late in the day, after the books were in, there were to be, there were to, well, there were to be subtitles. Well, actually, that, for me, that was quite easy because I realised when this was called upon that my book was actually the quest for fame. And there was no need to alter a word. It already was that.
6: So Henry VIII was himself seeing himself in that long context, in the context of the generations to come. If, if you're saying this is a quest for fame, this is about lasting um, Achievement and lasting. Oh, of course, memory. yes.
7: Well, I mean, this is. I mean, he'd had a very brief visit as a, as a young boy, uh, forty ninety nine. You know, he's well, actually he's still eight. Uh, and Erasmus of Rotterdam, the most famous intellectual in Europe, comes with Thomas More. Uh, and he meets Henry, and you know he 's immediately struck by the fact that this is, a, this is a boy who wants to do i mean his elder brother Arthur is still alive, but this is still uh, a young boy you know who knows how to steal the show at other people 's parties uh, and this is through i know i mean this is one of the big themes of the, the book but look but look, Henry also had you know, what we might call the cassius Kay, clay, uh, um, clay syndrome, and he, he wanted to be the greatest i mean he uses the thing about Henry' is he uses art. And he uses printed propaganda to be his own, um, you know, PR person to get get the message uh, across. And, you know, I mean, Hans Holbein the Younger. Go on the tube. What is iconic of the British monarchy today, even? You know, historic royal palaces, their most commonly reproduced image. Henry VIII by Hans Holbein the Younger, and, and Holbein would have had a wonderful career working for Charles Archer. You know, I mean, in the in in, in the in, 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 in the good, in, in in the in the in good in the in the in the good, the good old days.
6: And you mention Erasmus meeting Henry when his older brother Arthur was still alive, and I think that's a very interesting element to this. Actually, three of the four monarchs we're talking about today, including Henry VIII, were younger sons. If that quest for greatness was there before he yes. became the heir to the throne, does that? secondary place affect Henry VIII's psychological and political development?
7: Well, actually, it does in a slightly different way to the one that you might be suggesting. It affects it because, because he was the, the second son. You, you do understand that in the 16th century, only the heir got a proper education, the top quality education, the Italian Renaissance-type education. The younger son, Elizabeth I, was allowed to read the best classical texts only when she was in the succession. When she was out of the succession, you know, she was back on naughty books. Um, you understand. You understand this. Uh, and uh, and and so it, for, for a, a surprise, if you were the heir to the throne at age six, you, you were given a, a top tutor from one of the you know the best colleges in Oxford or Cambridge or, or whatever. Whereas Henry was ed- was brought up by women until quite a light, uh, late stage, and unusually because royal women were never normally allowed to have control of their children. I mean, this was a big issue of content. Anne Boleyn went mad when she wasn't allowed to have Elizabeth cl- close to her. Uh, uh, Henry was with his mother, and his mother spoiled him rotten. Uh, and some of the characteristics of Henry's you know, petulance and Henry's you know, desire... I mean, his insatiable greed, essentially. His desire to accumulate things. You know, one of the, be- I mean, the best chapter in my book, I think, is the one which is called A Second Solomon, where Henry sets out to be like an Old Testament patriarch, because um, he's made himself head of the church, remember, like Solomon in the Old Testament, sitting on an ivory throne. And literally, he sits on, no such palace, he sits on an ivory throne in, in a sculpture on the wall, literally on an ivory throne, with Edward beside him, you know, as of, as in, you know, the the, the Old, Old Testament. And, of course, he builds no such palace as a spectacular renaissance extravaganza, and he goes there only twice. You know, he spends the equivalent of you know modern money, about 100 million quid, on a palace to which he only goes to twice. The reason was that no one looked for the water supply before they started building. So the, <laughs> Elizabeth later could go there because they found, found, found the
6: water, water supply. So spoilt, but without the intellectual training.
7: Oh, no, 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 he active. had... But then he got the intellectual training. When, right. After Arthur died, he got the intellectual training. And you see, your problem with Henry is that... He is actually rather well-educated, he's really rather intelligent, but um, you know, it's a case of what Alexander Pope said, you know, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Uh, of course, the big disaster for everybody else, apart from Henry, was that because he um, did his own research for his first divorce campaign and, and, and sent for you know, people who sort of helped him to work things, work things out, he was actually an expert on it, and then, of course, he got Thomas More to, to, to attack Luther. And Thomas More then knew also, he, and he tried to involve Thomas More in the divorce. So they all knew too much, and of course, this meant that issues of principle actually, you know, basically separated out, and you get these violent, um, you get these violent uh, com- conflicts.
6: Well, one king who did have the rigorous training of the heir to the throne, because he was heir to the throne from the moment he was born, was Stephen, your monarch, Edward VI. And you've called your book about him, uh, Henry VIII's longed-for heir, who inherited the crown at the age of nine, you've called him the last boy king, a phrase with all sorts of resonances. Could you tell us what's significant about that idea for you, the last boy king?
5: I think in a sense he could also be called... um the unfinished king, a king who was prepared from such a young age to carry the weight, to bear the weight and burden of the, of the crown, of long expectation. And, and really a sense for Edward, by the age of seven or eight, in writing letters to Queen Catherine Parr, to his father Henry, of understanding that heavy expectation, Um, and perhaps over time seeing the potential of that, but also the um, times you feel the pain of that also. The thing that I found really challenging, still, I mean, beyond the book um, about Edward, is trying to make sense of, of a child's life without the context of adulthood. And that's really difficult. It's much more difficult than I'd imagined, actually.
6: And, and part of that challenge must be working out the relationship between the individual, the private person, yes. and the public figure, because government is being carried out in his name yes. by yes. all the adults around him. And yet, yes. as he gets older, this fine mind with this great training and this yes. burden of responsibility uh, must be increasingly present, and yet that's a very, the public and the private is a very difficult thing to sort out,
5: isn't it? It is, absolutely. And of course the relationship changed over a number of years. Uh, it, it, it was a royal minority. Royal minorities were problematic and had been problematic politically for a long, long time. Great risks, great dangers, um, but always shifting, never in a stasis. I mean, always moving. Um, and the sense of Edward growing, slowly and gradually into, into a role. Um, but sorting out, in a sense, the public and the private is quite difficult. I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. In, in a way, government, in a very real sense, government was carried out in the king's name, as it had to be, by a protector, by a governor, by the king's council. Um, the Private Edward, well, in a sense, that was one of the challenges of the book, to try and find the the boy, to try and find the voice, to hear um, the voice. And we do have sources. Uh, we have wonderful sources. You know, We have lots and lots of words, thousands of words, by this very young prince, very young king. Um, but they're difficult words in all kinds of ways. And we have to kind of tune in our ears to work out the... Many layers of meaning and significance to get close to his, as John said earlier, kind of interior world. You know, which is, in a sense, what we're really interested in. I think in the series.
6: And one of the illustrations in your very beautiful book is a very resonant picture from the Ladybird Histories, (laughs) an illustration of two burly noblemen arguing with each other, and this little boy in the corner of the frame looking solemnly and slightly nervously on. Is that a, a fair representation of Edward's experience, do you think? Or, or was he a more active, more powerful figure than, than we might assume?
5: Oh, it's a tricky one. I, I Well, with the reproduction of the Ladybird um, <laughs> Book of Kings and Queens, I always pushed the, the intellectual heights. <laughs> um, but I couldn't resist it. I, I remember, I really remember as, as a child, as a boy, looking at this image of a boy and trying to, to kind of make sense of that. I mean, yeah, it, in in a way, in those early years, that there is a sense of um, sort of disconnection of seeing this very small boy trying to make sense, failing to make sense, have a really complex um, political world um, with enormous challenges and enormous dangers. Um, I think maybe that changed over time. There's an element of fantasy, though, uh, to it. By the time he was 14, there's a developing kind of kingly voice and kingly register. There's a tone of um, command. There's an imperiousness. There's a bossiness. There's certainly a bossiness with his friends. There's a hint of finger wagging at counsellors. He's not on the cusp of adult kingship. He's a good few years away from that. Um, And yet... For all the fantasy, there's, there's a sense of a king who was beginning to realise that he had to be in charge, I think.
6: And you've spoken of it as an unfinished life. Is it possible to say what, how different the history of England might have been oh, had he counterfactuals. lived? counterfactuals. I know. Oh, dear. Which, of course, started <laughs> your wonderful book on Elizabethan espionage. so I felt I could ask you this, uh, a counterfactual. <laughs> I think, well... I, uh,
5: yes I, I'll, I'll, I'll just say yes, um, I, you know without Mary, without Elizabeth, you know for Elizabeth, that deep discomfort, I think, at being um, expected to be a reforming Edward, um, which is something that Elizabeth entirely didn't you know absolutely didn't want um. Scourging, scouring Protestant Reformation. Um, Archbishop Cranmer still with a kind of project in hand. Um, in 1553, the potential of Edward as another Henry VIII. Who knows? Yeah, I think it, 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 it would have been. It would have been different.
6: And just very quickly how do you feel about the decision of the Penguin series to miss out Lady Jane Grey? Is that the right who could have succeeded Edward who for nine days was
5: oh, recognised oh, or you not throw, oh, as William um, Yeah, that's a re- <laughs> That's a tough one. I mean, in, in Edward's mind, uh, there was an element of um, legitimacy there. Jane Grey... Represented um, an opportunity for the continuity of monarchy, monarchy of a certain kind. um, That Edward, I think, in fifteen fifty three, close to his death, um, valued. We Um, should
6: say Edward nominated Jane Grey as his successor.
5: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, disinheriting his half sister Mary, disinheriting um, his half sister Elizabeth. Having said that, there's such a sense of um, purpose and force in the way that Mary claimed the throne in the summer of 1553 that, in in, in a sense, Jane is that kind of footnote. You
6: know, it's <laughs> Edward may have seen her as a queen, to say but, it, but, but you know, yes. no one else, really. <laughs> Or very few people, well, Edward the Sixth is our only monarch this evening, who was from the moment of his birth mm. heir to the throne, and of course he didn 't live to rule as an adult. but now we come to another king who, like Henry the Eighth, was the second son of his parents and david you 've called your life of George V the unexpected king. Do you see that circumstance of not having been born as heir to the thro- been born as heir to the throne? Did that have a defining effect on george fifth 's reign?
1: Well, I ought to say that um, the point at which I learned that the subtitle to my book was The Unexpected King was when the publishers sent the (laughs) proofs. Whether this meant they hadn't expected me to write the book, uh, I I have to say I'm not entirely sure. Um, But it's a very good title and they clearly were very wise in making it up for for the book rather than leaving me to do it. But the the substantive point is a very interesting one. Um, Of course, it's true in the case of John's Henry VIII that Henry was not born expecting to become king. He had an elder brother who then died, which meant uh, Henry then became first uh, in line. Uh, It's also true, of course, of Mark Kishlansky's Charles I that the same was true, uh, that he he wasn't born to be king. It's true of my monarch, George V, and it's true of Philip's monarch, George VI. And it's an interesting comment on the strangeness and almost randomness of this process of perpetuating an institution across the generations, which ought to be very straightforward. You know, monarchy is a brass tax affair. You know, T.S. Eliot, birth, copulation, and death. That's all the facts when you get down to brass tax, birth, copulation, and death. And there is a sense in which monarchy is about birth, copulation, and death. That's kind of how it works and how it happens. But death is a kind of random variable in this. insofar as uh, Henry VIII's elder brother died and Charles, the first elder brother, died. And in the case of my man, George V, of course, his elder brother was the Duke of Clarence and Avondale, a man of pitifully limited intellect, of even more limited attention span, a man whose morals... Uh, were deplorable, Um, and uh, it was all to the good of the British monarchy that he died. Um, (laughs) There cannot be any doubt of that. He would have been a dreadful king, whereas George V was actually a hugely successful king. But for the first 26 years of his life, George V, as he became, did not expect to become king. Uh, and he went on to be a hugely successful king, and many, certainly in modern times, of this country's most successful monarchs, Queen Victoria, George V, George VI, the present queen, were not born expecting that they would reign. So one of the slightly um, uh, quixotic conclusions that one might draw from this, and I can't suppose this would necessarily play all that well at Highgrove House, is that the best preparation to be a monarch is not to be born expecting to be a monarch.
6: And is that because, is that because you then get exposed to experience that you wouldn't be allowed to have, were you the heir to the throne? I mean, for example, George V's uh, military naval experience um, before he became the heir to the throne—that he was allowed. Uh, am I right in saying that he was allowed more active service, as it were, rather like Prince Harry today?
1: Well. Uh, George V and his elder brother both uh, went on various naval expeditions together and, as it were, trained uh, to go into the navy, as uh, indeed did Edward VIII as he became and George VI as he became in the next generation. I think uh, another issue which this raises, as we are thinking, as it were, across monarchies and across centuries, is the difference between the notion of the fact that in the time when monarchs ruled as well as reigned, it was expected that they should be well-educated because they needed to be part of the broader culture of their time, in particular the Renaissance culture, which is, in a sense, the world uh, that John uh, and Stephen talk about. Whereas by the time one reaches um, the world of Edward VII and George V and Edward VIII and George VI, we move to a wholly different notion of a kind of Philistine monarchy. Uh, These were very undereducated people by comparison with their predecessors, but it kind of didn't matter. And maybe, actually, if you're going to be a monarch who reigns rather than rules, maybe it's a positive advantage not to be very well educated. I mean, that sounds slightly perverse, and again, it may not play very well at Highgrove. But there is a kind of case for that.
6: And how then did George, with his preparation or lack of preparation of various kinds, how did he see his role because Henry VIII, Edward VI, in waiting at least, were in a position where they were in charge of their world. They were directing, at least to some degree, the tumultuous events by which they were surrounded. But George V, absolutely did not make the decision to go to war in 1914 he wasn't in control in the same way how did he understand his role as king
1: I think that's right I think monarchs that reign rather than rule are reactive rather than proactive I think that's certainly true it's also the case actually that Edward VII did let George V when heir to the throne see state papers which is more than Queen Victoria Edward VII's mother had ever let him do so he although he wasn't very well educated he didn't come to the throne wholly unprepared I think George V's notion of monarchy, to some degree, did conform to the um, adumbration of Walter Badgett, the uh, 19th century editor of The Economist, who of course wrote this famous book, The English Constitution, in which he said that there were two different parts of the English Constitution, the dignified part and the efficient part. Um, and the efficient part allegedly was the cabinet and the House of Commons, um, and the dignified part was the monarchy and the House of Lords, um, and Badgett said that a monarch had three rights, uh, to warn, to encourage, and to be consulted, and this is often trotted out as the essence of how to be a constitutional monarch, made up, in fact, by a 19th-century journalist, and that's the founding text of constitutional monarchy, which itself is perhaps slightly interesting. Um, and George V was certainly brought up on Badgett, Um, What he made of it, I'm not sure, since actually Badgett's writing is very confused. Um, George V, I think, was himself a conservative figure uh, with a small C and probably with a large C. But he did, I think, have an understanding that his job as monarch was not to intrude his own private views into the conduct of public business. And I think he saw the role of monarch insofar as it related to politics as being a kind of referee to try to bring people together to see that fair play was observed, to bring people together over the row over the Parliament Act, over Ulster, and then over the formation of the national government. He rather liked coalitions. He didn't really like political parties. And I think he had a very strong sense that that was his job with regard to British politics. I think his job was also to set a certain tone to public life and to to present himself as the father of his imperial people at which he was very good, whereas, as far as being the father of his own children was concerned, he wasn't anything like as good.
6: Which brings us, of course, to Philip's king, George the Sixth, also a second son, but one who took the throne in very different circumstances from either George the or Henry the Eighth. It wasn't a question of a sudden death. Uh, making him heir to the throne, but instead, perhaps with echoes of Henry VIII, a sudden crisis revolving around the king's marriage, his elder brother Edward VIII. So he, of all our monarchs today, had the least warning of what was about to happen to him. Is that part of the key to understanding him as king, would you say?
3: I think he was, as you say, he was a prime example of the King who was not born to be king. I think he differed from most of the others in that he did not want to be king. He desperately didn't want to be king. He was horrified when the possibility occurred and convinced that he was inadequate and would not be able to do it. And he, he rightly thought that his elder brother, the Duke of Windsor, was quicker, cleverer, funnier, more charming, better at public speaking, he wrongly thought that this mattered most and that integrity, decency, infinite patience, tolerance were features which mattered less than the other ones. And As a result, he came to the throne not merely unwillingly but with a conviction that he was not going to be able to do the job properly. I think he was saved by two factors. I mean, One most particularly his wife, who had all the charm which he lacked himself, who was infinitely good at public relations, who threw herself wholeheartedly into the business of sustaining him and keeping him going. And he had a man of tremendous sense of duty. He would undoubtedly have gritted his teeth and gone on to the throne if he'd had to. But I think without the help of his wife, he would probably have broken down
6: So for him, perhaps more than anyone else we're talking about this evening, the relationship between public and private, the role and the individual, was a very, very painful one. Um, Do you think it's one he ever managed to reconcile? Or was that strain, that tension caused by having taken on a role he didn't feel equipped to fulfil personally? Did that continue? Did that shape his kingship?
3: He, from the very start he was under intense pressure as I say I think without the constant sustaining help of his wife he would not have been able to stand up to it. it I think probably by the time he'd been three or four years on the throne he found he was actually quite enjoying it and the thing that really saved him in a way was the war I mean, obviously, he had no, nothing to do with running the, the country during a war. He didn't make policy when he got. And indeed, with, with Churchill around, he didn't even have to be a sort of preeminent figurehead. But he achieved enormous popularity during a war just because of that sense of duty, of the image we all have of him, as this slightly sad looking man picking his way around the ruins of, of bombed London and quite obviously caring desperately for the plight of his people and sympathising with them and identifying with them. And I think he acquired a, the love of his people during that war, which he would not have got if this sort of dramatic circumstance had not occurred.
6: Do you think that issue is really at the heart of the questions raised by the modern monarchy, if the monarch is in some senses still central to the functioning of our constitution, yet has no agency to it, cannot direct anything, um, has to be a passive figure. Are we asking the human being at the centre of that to do an impossible job, in a sense?
3: I think we're asking some human beings to do an impossible job. I don't think we were asking King George VI to do an impossible job. He was extraordinarily well suited for it, because he accepted the fact that he was a figurehead. He had absolutely no wish at all to interfere with making a policy. And he was himself an intensely conservative with a small C individual. And if he he had a vote, he'd be an intensely conservative with a large C individual. But he saw it as his duty when the Labour government came into power in 1945 to get on terms with them, to work with them. And it was a very difficult pill indeed for him to swallow. He did so, but he knew it was his duty to do so. Always he was possessed by this sense, this sense of duty which impelled him, drove him, and f- sent him to, uh, to an early grave.
6: Are we saying then, perhaps a bit like politicians, that um, actually the monarch who doesn't want to be monarch is the one we now want <laughs> to do the job as well as, as, as it can be done?
3: I think a monarch <laughs> who very, very much did want to be a monarch would be slightly suspicious.
6: <laughs> right. right. Um, <laughs> Well, that perhaps does bring us on to wider questions that we can discuss with all four of our our speakers today. Um, All the kings we're talking about here, like all the other 41 subjects of these books and like Elizabeth II today, were crowned and anointed with holy oil in a ceremony full of mystery and sanctity. Now, that was at the heart of Henry VIII and Edward VI's understanding of their power, and the ceremony is still there, but has that sense of sanctity gone? David Canadine, do you, do you think that's gone?
1: Well, I don't think it had gone in the case of George VI. So of course, I defer to Philip mm. over that, and certainly not in the case of his wife, and I don't think in the case of the present queen, in as much as uh, they regarded the coronation as uh, a sacrament, Um, and that they were declaring before God and the people that they would serve out their allotted span as monarch. So I think that the sense that this is a religiously hallowed enterprise was something that George VI and Queen Elizabeth felt and was something that the present Queen felt. I don't think that translated in the way that, as it were, in earlier times it might have done into the notion that because this is... um, uh, an enterprise hallowed by a sacrament, uh, it means you rule by divine right. I think that bit, as it were, had disappeared, but I think the sense that a coronation is a sacrament according to the rights of the Church of England, of which the monarch is supreme governor, was powerful. And one of the things I think uh, that's probably still many years off that's going to be interesting is if Prince Charles when he becomes king, wishes to be crowned not just defender of the faith, which is, of course, the Protestant faith in a Protestant service, but defender of all faiths. There's going to have to be some very nifty theological footwork um, to try to make that work.
6: At which the English monarchy has, of course, excelled mm. since the 16th century. John, what's your perspective on this well, in well, terms of the powers that Henry VIII... Oh, uh, yes, yes. Well, of course, himself.
7: it's already done it because, of course, the, the defender of the faith title was granted by the Pope to Henry VIII for defending the Catholic Indeed. faith against Martin Luther so history can make these um, little com- adjustments little, little, little <laughs> convolution. No, no 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 I mean this, is, this, is, this question is absolutely central because Henry broke with Rome he was the loyal son of the Pope who then quarreled with the Pope and he'd started to quarrel with the Pope even before the whole business of Anne Boleyn came, on, came onto the uh, horizon so he broke with Rome he creates the Church of England he uh, suppresses the abbeys he centralizes the, you know, the, the, the country, uh, you know, not just in terms of the secular polity through a bureaucracy based on Whitehall. I mean, Henry literally created Whitehall. I mean, physically, in terms of the physical space, he built the palace, but also in terms of the idea of command and control over the country. Um, the power of parliament was hugely expanded, although parliament had to be accountable to Henry. This is, that's, that's another big change. At some moment, the monarchy became accountable to Parliament, not on Henry's life, but in—I you know, mean—in terms of kingship, Henry dramatically transforms the theory of kingship because he actually believes that he is not only supreme head of the church, he is Christ's deputy on earth. And, and take it from me, he believed this. You can see in his own handwriting, just briefly to sort of sketch how this came into play uh, as part of the first divorce campaign. Having failed to get a divorce at Rome, Henry turns to new counsellors. These are coming out of the Berlin stable. Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, we've all heard of him, the future archbishop. Some of you probably never heard of Edward Fox, who was provost of King's College, Cambridge. They were the think tank. They produced the dossier. The dossier said that not simply... You don't go on the narrow principle of can I get a divorce. You go on the big principle of who has legitimate power over the church. And they had produced this masterful dossier based on partly true history, partly pseudo-history, partly sort of faked or doctored sources. That, And, of course, they were doing it to make a better world. They were compromising their, if you like, ethics in order to create a better world. Uh, and they produced this dossier in which Henry should reclaim the regality lost by um, you know, the sort of negligence of, of medieval kings who weren't watching while the popes were unlawfully expanding their and that the king of England had always been the head of the church. And actually, if you go back to William the Conqueror's reign, actually, that's not actually quite a silly argument. You know, we won't go there now, but <laughs> we, 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 we could. But he he then annotates this in forty six places, and then goes on to lay down the articles of faith. Uh, he believed that he could interpret the Bible, and everybody had to follow that interpretation. He had a big um, discussion with Cranmer to and fro. He he believed that he could ordain, by virtue of his uh, royal supremacy, this um, role he had as Christ. He thought he talked directly to God, trust me. Uh, You didn't talk to God through bishops. Bishops were pushed into the background a bit. Could Henry ordain bishops? Could he ordain priests? He actually fought this. He tried a heretic wearing white, rather like Alexander the Great would put on, that's the fame theme again, would put on religious dress absolutely astonishing it's hugely dangerous of course i mean cromwell that knew this was nonsense but of course how to how to how to how to how to, how to, how to stop him yeah. now the point the point is the point is that this is completely new because we've all heard of charlemagne we've all heard of divine right monarchy in the middle ages by edward the reign the last sort of if you like proper you know male adult yorkist king this theory is just dead it's in the bin henry absolutely brings brings it bring, brings it back now um, it was a bit more difficult for Elizabeth because, of course, she was a woman. And, of course, come on, masculinity comes into all of this in a very big way and, and, and gender. But at a, at a moment, Charles the First problem is that he thinks he can be like Henry VIII. But, of course, by then things have changed. We all understand from textbooks and, you know, from our own knowledge uh, or even, you know, and I've looked into this because this is obviously a theme of great interest to me. In 1689, this, if you like, sacral element was stripped out of kingship in the revised coronation oath and, and, and the repercussions of it look just absolutely huge because if you have this role you can as it were give the laws like anglo-saxon theocrats and if you think that parliament is accountable to you then you know that is also so when did this disappear i once asked i shouldn't tell you this but i'm going to tell you this <laughs> or i shan't name names i once asked a sitting archbishop of canterbury you know what the present queen thought about this but of course, I didn't expect him to give me an answer, and I'm not entirely sure that he, but he knew. But, but his impression was that there was this sense, as David has mentioned, there's this sense that there's a special calling through this sacrament. Of course, this is hugely politically incorrect, in, you know, in a modern multicultural, multi-multi faith society. And so, my, I'm going to ask a question now, but I'm going to leave other people to give the answer and shut up. Um, now that a po- now that a pope, now that a pope can abdicate, now that a pope can abdicate. Uh, properly, because you know, up until now, no pope has really properly abdicated. I mean, yeah, okay, Celestine V sort of stepped down because Boniface VIII was standing behind him, you know, with a sort of knife in his back or a hammer. Um, in a, now that a, now that a pope can abdicate, you know, should should we, you know, should should this convolution which is, of course, it was papal monarchy that fed into you know, to, to, to secular monarchy in the Middle Ages. You know, it, does, this, does this actually square the circle? This
6: is a question for Philip, whose King George V came to the throne as a result of an abdication, the only abdication uh, of its kind. What do you think, Philip? Do, do you think that now, as John says, we have an abdicated pope, we have an ex-pope, does that mean that the nature of the sacramental authority, the sacramental um, role passed on to a, to a British monarch at the moment of coronation, could that now be given over to the next generation without the kind of trauma that was precipitated in 1936?
3: Uh, first, I, I would doubt whether <laughs> what happens in the Vatican is likely <laughs> to... Change the habits of the British monarchy. I honestly don't think <laughs> the, the parallel is a, a very good one. But um, my guess is that the possibility of abdication has not, well, ha- has occurred to the Queen, but it has been dismissed simply because she believes it to be a job for life. And nothing is going to shake that view. And I think... It, it's highly unlikely that um, when her son eventually succeeds to the throne, he will have any different views. And it, it is, you are brought up with the belief that you are crowned, it is a sacrament, and you are stuck with it. And I don't believe there's any, any possibility, serious possibility that we will see any further abdications and the one abdication we did have of course was altogether freakish and in a way demonstrated the fact that King Edward dates shouldn't have been king anyway
1: It's important I think to notice that in 1947 when she was 21 and in South Africa the Queen made this famous broadcast mm. where she pledged the whole of her life the whole of her life mm be it long or short, Mm. to the service of the great imperial family to which in those days Mm. the British monarch was the kind of Mm. top of the tree. There's also a bit of verbal slippage here, of course, about abdication. Uh, Edward VIII abdicated, that's to say he didn't want to be king um, the previous pope retired having done the job and the presumption that abdication and retirement are somehow the same thing may be great fodder for tabloids but they are rather different notions. I mean, I think few people would begrudge the queen retiring. Almost everybody begrudged Edward VIII abdicating. There was a famous cartoon produced, was there not? In the Edward VIII broadcast, he said, I have found it impossible to carry on doing this job without the health and strength and support of the woman I love. And there was a cartoon producer newspaper the next day of a navvy throwing down his shovel and saying, I have found it impossible to carry on. Now, that's abdication, Mm -hmm. reneging on responsibilities. Retirement is saying, I've done the job for many decades. It's time for someone else. But I think the likelihood of a discussion which shows an awareness of those different words and what they describe isn't very high and, indeed, isn't relevant because, as Philip says, she's not going to be giving up. You know, by the time the Queen dies many of us will have been dead several
6: years. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen Olford, could I bring you in here? Um, Given that uh, this sacramental responsibility is passed down by blood, and in a sense we get the luck of the hereditary draw, therefore, (laughs) is it possible to identify as a historian the qualities that have made a great monarch? And if so, are these positive qualities, or is there a case to be made for them actually being the lack of other qualities?
5: I'm going to evade your question beautifully are you? <laughs> and say that it depended very much on the period. And I think it, it, yeah. it does, to a degree, depend on that distinction that, in a sense, we've all been working around between rule and the expectation of rule, and control, and executive authority, and of being touched by the divine. And, yes, perhaps still an element of that, but a certain element of constitutional passivity, or at least it seems passive from the outside. Um, Looking on behind the scenes today, perhaps it's something very different in a prime minister's audience with a queen. Um, They're different things,
6: I think. So could we... Perhaps say that the qualities that Henry VIII and Edward VI would have thought of as the key yeah. elements to their kingship are almost the opposite yes, of what we would now yes, be looking for.
5: Yes, we're yes. talking
6: about a, a mirror image.
5: Is it today passivity? Is it the willingness to um, to be silent, to step back, to um, fulfil a symbolic role? Uh, to represent a sense of corporate... National belonging and identity. Well, I think probably yes. For Henry VIII, for an Edward VI, I think very different. It actually, is the issue of activity. shifting from being,
1: as it were, an efficient ruler mm. uh, to a dignified person who's reigning. I mean, monarchs historically are generically male, and that's because they're supposed to be warrior kings and philosopher kings and lawgivers, and mm. that's historically what monarchs were supposed to do in a time when they ruled. Uh, Whereas constitutional monarchy is, in a sense, emasculated monarchy. They don't do any of those things anymore. And there's a sense in which it's feminized monarchy. It's much easier for a woman to be a constitutional monarch, I think, than for a man. Because if you're a man, you're still hankering after these macho things. Doing things. Doing things, interfering. Whereas, actually, the point of being a constitutional monarch is that you don't interfere. And the Queen has done that very brilliantly, I think. I mean, we don't really know what the Queen thinks about anything. And to have sustained that across 60 years is a truly extraordinary... And
6: and culturally, we are used to the idea of figureheads being female, that figureheads on ships are female, statues of great... Conceptual qualities, justice or liberty, are female. So actually, Victoria works in a way, and Elizabeth II works in a way. Is Charles II, uh, Charles the? Sorry, slip of the tongue there. Charles III going to have a much more difficult time.
1: Well, I think part of the job of, if as it were, you have to give up for a variety of reasons to do with just historical evolution, the, the generically male aspects of monarchy. Then part of the challenge of constitutional monarchy is finding other things for them to do. I mean, that really is a serious issue, I think, and philanthropy is very important. If one thinks of Frank Prahaska's works on the British monarchy as a philanthropic monarchy, the notion of a family on the throne, a family monarchy is very important. Uh, I think going out and running or being a governor of parts of the empire was very important, though you can't do that now because there's no empire left to govern. But this sense of finding alternative things for them to do which keep them occupied, keep them in the public eye, but keep them out of the business of government, is in a sense the challenge of constitutional monarchy. And uh, the Queen has been terribly good at that because she hasn't given us her opinions on almost anything really, except which racehorses she prefers, and that's (laughs) fine. I think what's going to be interesting some years down the line is whether Prince Charles really is, if if and when he becomes king, going to insist on expressing as monarch the sort of opinions which the Queen never has. Mm -hmm.
6: John Guy, is our fascination with monarchs, which is an enduring one, I think, a useful way of organising our thoughts about our history? Or actually, does it prevent us thinking in other, perhaps more creative, more... um, unusual ways about the structure of our history?
7: Oh, yes, well, I think so. I mean, I am not a historian of the monarchy. I just happen to know about certain, you know, <laughs> rulers. Uh, uh, I, I mean, if the most... Inf- well, I mean, I mean, everyone has their tastes. Um, uh, but... So, uh, I, mean, I mean, monarchy, to begin with, is, is, I mean, is, is really a topic in the history of ideas. Uh, I mean, the modern monarchy, by the standards of the understanding of monarchy, isn't a monarchy at all because it's castrated. It's castrated monarchy, a feminized monarchy, if you, you if if, if you, if you, if you like. Um, I mean, I'm interested. I mean, essentially, I've become a biographer which is, of course, very different to being a historian because you're, you're trying to look inside people's heads, which you can only really do in no- still, novels, or, novels or films right, or you know, but whatever. but still, therefore,
6: we're looking at great men, um, uh, usually men, not always, but the great, because those are the subjects historically that we stand yes, a chance of looking inside yeah, the I head of. I know,
7: off. but actually, we're also... I mean, particularly now... I mean, I've been in this game for... You know, I won't tell you how long, but I was a student <laughs> of Geoffrey Elton, so you know, some people will know,
2: you know quite <laughs> what, what that means. What
7: that means. means. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, and what's transformed Tudor history is an understanding of you know gender. I mean, I'm not a gender historian as such, but the difference between an understanding of the masculine and you know the feminine elements um, in play in, um, in in kingship, queenship, you know, queen consortship. In the in the case of Philip and Mary, Mary, that is um, remember remember the man who sent the Armada. Against England in 1588, was the man who was married to Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's elder daughter, and Elizabeth's immediate pre- predecessor.
0: are, so uh, underst- no,
7: no, no, no. but you see, this is where, where the whole thing <laughs> re- absolutely opens up, because Philip arrived. There were, there were treaties. There was an act of parliament saying that Mary would be, you know, sole solely and sole queen. That Philip wouldn't have a role; he couldn't interfere in politics. You know, he had to be the equivalent of a consort, but he had the t- he wouldn't come unless he had the title the title of king. Uh, uh, the moment he gets here, of course, it all changes. I mean, it's like imagining that just issuing a piece of paper in Washington D.C. is somehow going to affect what's happening in you know, sort of you know, remote Texas or you know, Arizona or whatever. Um, it, it just it doesn't happen. And actually, you can see this visually. At the beginning of the reign, the crown is stuck over Mary. And by the middle of, you know, there, it's a very short reign, of course. I mean, mean, Philip arrives in 54. He's gone in, you know, he's gone, actually, he's gone in 57. He doesn't even stay till 58. Um, The crown moves. And by the end, it's over, it's over Philip. Because, and he's, he's, he's dealing with patronage, he's dealing with finance, he's dealing with defence. There's a very silly article that was written by, actually, I mean, a series of silly counterfactual articles. You know, what would, what would, what would the Spanish have done, you know, if the, if the Armada had, um, um, you know, land, that, sort of, that sort of... I mean, Geoffrey Parker wrote a brilliant one, but, I mean, people who imagine, you know, how would they have known where to go? I mean, Philip had controlled... You know, ammunition and stocks and the defence uh, at, 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 at the tower. So, I mean, I would, you know, the, the gender is... She? Elizabeth... You know, look, I mean, I'm writing Elizabeth I at the moment. Do you, think, do you think that Elizabeth I had authority because she was a queen? Certainly, Forget it. She was in a battle for 20-odd 20, 20 years to establish her authority against her own councillors because, you know... I mean, people wrote books defending female monarchy, uh, at the beginning of her reign, saying the great thing about Elizabeth is, a, is she'll be a queen who does what her councillors and judges tell her to do, which is a bit like telling Mrs. Thatcher that you know she's been made prime minister in order to be told what to do by her, by by her, her by her, by, by, by her cabinet. So you know, with that, you know it's a whole different. Yeah. That, that's that's the that's that's the interesting area of of of, of this of the, if you want to be a historian of monarchy.
6: Finally, Philip, um, the hereditary monarchy that you have studied in looking at George VI's reign. Is that no more than a historical curiosity now? And if so, does that mean its days are essentially numbered?
3: I think it's more than a historical curiosity, but it does not have any very great political significance. I mean, psychologically, in terms of the the inner life of the British people, the monarchy still, I think, plays a curiously important part. national life would significantly be changed quite radically if a monarchy disappeared, even though the actual conduct of government would, be, would go on exactly the same way.
6: But one thing we know from the discussion this evening is that the British monarchy has never stood still, so we watch with great interest.
2: That was Helen Castor chairing a discussion recorded at the Emanuel Centre in London last December. Books by all four of the speakers are now available in the Penguin Monarchs series, published by Alan Lane. And you can read more from John Guy in an interview in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's issue, we explore the closing months of the Second World War from a military and domestic perspective. We find out about Charles II's sex obsession, and we get the inside story of Wolf Hall. You can get hold of our January issue for a few more days in all good news agents and, of course, digitally. And if you'd like to take out a print subscription and you're in the UK, then you can currently take advantage of a special offer whereby you'll get your first five issues for just £1 each. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe to find out more about this deal, which ends on the 28th of January. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan.
0: The accuracy of a new two pound coin that shows the signing of Magna Carta and King John holding a quill has been called into question by a historian who says the monarch would not have used such an instrument. Middle Ages expert Dr. Mark Morris told The Telegraph To depict King John holding a quill is simply a schoolboy error. Medieval kings did not authenticate documents by signing them, they did it by sealing them or rather by getting one of their officials to do it for them. All the pen in John's hand symbolises is ignorance of this basic fact. The Royal Mint defended the coin, which was commissioned to celebrate the 800th anniversary of the Charter, saying the image was, quote, symbolic rather than, quote, factual. A spokesman said, the design is symbolic of King John's acceptance of the Magna Carta. It is not intended to be interpreted as a literal account of what actually occurred. Magna Carta was endorsed by King John of England at Runnymede, near Windsor, on the fifteenth of June 1215. In other news, Wolf Hall author Hilary Mantel has insisted the characters featured in the BBC television adaptation of her books have clean, white teeth. In a bid to ensure the historical accuracy of the new six-part series, which aired this week, Mantel said courtiers would have had white teeth as sugar was not yet widely available. According to the Sunday Telegraph, she told cast members, You do not have bad teeth and you are not dirty. The BBC2 adaptation of Wolf Hall stars Homeland's Damien Lewis as Henry VIII, Mark Rylance as Thomas Cromwell and Claire Foy as Anne Boleyn. Meanwhile, an unmarked mass grave containing the bodies of more than 3,000 paupers has been discovered in Bristol. The disused burial ground was found at the 19th century Eastville Workhouse site by Bristol Radical History Group, which spotted the site on a 1902 Ordnance Survey map. The Eastville Workhouse, which was known as 100 Fishponds Road, had 1,200 inmates and was one of the largest of the 600 in England and Wales, BBC News reports. Bristol Radical History Group volunteers spent two years going through workhouse death registers at Bristol Record Office to confirm the burials.
2: Thank you, Emma. And just before we go, here's a reminder that we have two upcoming reader events taking place in March. On the 21st and the 22nd, we're holding two-day events themed around Magna Carta and Waterloo. On each of these days, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History Magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we will be talking about Elizabeth I with Lisa Hilton, while Anita Anand will be telling us about a remarkable suffragette with royal connections. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.